Hello, everybody. Thanks for checking out the Direct Input Podcast. Today is Monday, February 5th in the year 2018. And tonight I am joined by the senior writer of one of the senior writers of DeadRhetoric.com, Mr. Matthew Coe. How are you, sir? Good. How are you? Thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> I'm happy to, jo- uh, to have you here at the Spencer Studio to join me tonight. I think, I think you're actually the first guest I've ever had from Connecticut. Wow. Uh, That's unusual. I, yeah, I don't know who else to have from Connecticut. Oh. Honestly. I mean, the <laughs> Night Pitch guys are the only dudes I really know. Right, right, right. So I think the last band I actually saw from Connecticut was Age of Embers. Okay, yeah. And I talked to the drummer who was from like Boston or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's also an ice giant, so he, he does double duty. Yeah, that but, was uh, it, yeah. Yeah, Age of Embers is one of the one of the better bands from Connecticut, in addition to Night Bitch. I'm familiar with Chris and his work for, uh, for years. Yeah, for, I, Connecticut's had... A pretty interesting history. Everything from Hatebreed and Jamie Josta to Fate's Warning and right. Liege Lord and yep. you know, like, I mean, you've seen a lot of this though. I mean, um, when, I, when I say this, the term senior writer, you're one of the more senior members of the staffs, uh, you know, at that deadrhetoric.com. Right, right. Yes, I just uh, just turned 47 on um, on Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday. That was uh, my 47th birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah, unfortunately the Patriots lost, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling they were going to lose for two weeks. I just could not really get uh, – I don't know. I, I've never dismissed the Eagles for being a shoddy, shoddy club this year. I think they've had a lot of great weapons. Right, right. Definitely, definitely. I, you know, Defense wins championships, and this year our defense let us down, especially with Brady you know, throwing over 500 yards and can't win the game. Oh, I know. <laughs> there was more total offense, I think, in that game than any other Super Bowl. Right. Or just yardage, at least. Yeah, over 1,000 yards. and it, just, it felt like a college football track meet just watching the teams go up and down the field. Just, yeah, no shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know. A lot of people are saying this is the end of the Patriots. I'm, I don't know if I can go that far yet, you know? There's going to be a lot of turnover, that's for sure. I mean, they've already yeah. announced that the defensive coordinator, Patricia, he's gone to Detroit, and they think McDaniels is going to Indianapolis. So uh, yeah, going to be a lot of turnover, and I'm sure Malcolm Butler, uh, I don't think he's coming back because he only played one play in the whole game. So Did he even play? He- yeah, he played one one play on special teams. Really? Yeah. It's all it's all over talk radio. They they they're trying to get an answer from Bill, and he's not giving an answer as to why he wasn't able to play. Basically, he found out just as the national anthem was playing. That's why he was crying. It's like he found out right at that moment that he wasn't going to be playing in the game. Really? See, I I, I don't know if I can put it on on Malcolm Butler though. To be right. honest, I I just don't know if I could. Like, no, no. I mean, I just think the defense didn't show up for the game. It was just. The, the, no, neither. I mean, there was only one punt in the whole game. Yeah, one punt. That's that never happens in a Super Bowl. Yeah, totally. And they rolled the dice twice on fourth down, and they made it on fourth down twice. You Fucking know? right. If you can't, if you can't stop a team on third down, never mind fourth down, yeah. you're probably going to lose the game. So, do you watch a lot of sports? Um, I'm I'm a New England fan, born and bred. Even though I've moved, I've transplanted to Connecticut three years ago. 
And the funny thing is, is a lot of people pick on me because I'm still, you know, a staunch Boston fan. I probably like the Red Sox and the Patriots the most. But uh, I guess in my part of Connecticut, when you're down in the south, southern part of Connecticut, past Hartford, you're supposed to be more of a New York sports fan. And oh. it hasn't happened yet. Where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in uh, Winchin in Massachusetts. It's a north central mass, probably about half hour outside of Fitchburg. So mm-hmm. right near the New Hampshire border. Uh, one of the only... St- Welcome to signs I've ever seen in Massachusetts with uh, Bienvenue on it. Yep. So there's French on the witch. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've been up there a few times. Actually, oh, yeah. my, my wife just went there for a ghost hunting oh, wow. expedition. In Winchington itself? Or? Yeah, it was a part of the, the Winchington Historical Society. Oh, nice. And, um, gosh, I couldn't tell you the name of the build. No, wait. It was... Um, it's an old Converse factory, I think. Okay. Does that line up? Like, was Converse shoes are yeah, made yeah. up there? Yeah, yeah. Was that where Converse started? No, no, no. Okay. But they, you know, basically, Winchenden is kind of known as the toy town, but it, they've had different mills and different factories through the years that basically um, have been a sustainable part of the business. Why are they known as the toy town? Um, just when they were uh, in the 1700s, basically, it was one of the big factories to make toys and they had hobby horses and stuff like that and just their plastic factories that have been there for hundreds of years that really have that's how it got known as the nickname the toy town no shit oh uh, yeah i mean it's uh kind of a remote area of massachusetts I definitely mean, is <laughs> yeah it's definitely right on the border of new hampshire uh, i think ringe is right that's next correct. to it so yep. And that's where Franklin Pierce College is, at, which ironically had a pretty interesting metal scene about 20 years ago. Right, right. Like the uh, bands like Raising Kubrick are coming out of there, uh, Spider's Gates. Oh, wow. Yeah. Have you ever met Blue? No. Um, like he's like, he's now in fit for an autopsy and okay. he's done a lot of, you know, time with dysentery and stuff. But right. like him and there was probably at least another dozen people that were going to franklin pierce and they had this little metal scene there there's probably three or four bands that popped out oh nice yeah out of all the places too you know it's like mm-hmm. southern new hampshire it's kind of remote you know i mean i went to college in uh, umass lowell so i was kind of more plugged into that scene that was going on probably from like 89 to 93 when i went to the school there mm-hmm. so i know people like uh rich fatalo yeah. who did uh, lost apparition records i knew him back in the day um he was in the same uh, great as me so i knew him when he was playing guitar for demise which turned into experiments and in fear a thrash band really? back then so i knew bands like them i knew only living witness uh jonah jenkins the singer he was basically uh record store clerk at slip disc records in bill Ricca. so him and i would talk about metal and hardcore like all the time during that time period Really? So I was watching Only Living Witness kind of grow from being like a demo level band to being a serious band. Sam Blackchurch, Atomicost, um, Temporary Insanity, Subjugator, bands like that. Like, you know, Wargasm obviously was the, the big band, you know, yeah. from Boston. But that's those are the bands I'm familiar with and like more of the club scene in Lowell and Nashua. There was a pretty good scene going on back then, like. For, for clubs and bands to play. Now it's kind of like people have to go to Manchester or unfortunately the defunct rec room in, in Peterborough. That's where the New Hampshire shows are now. But back mm. then there was a pretty good scene in Nashua and Lowell for, for metal bands and clubs. Yeah, I never... We did a few gigs in Lowell, um, but nothing much more north of that. Like I, I did one or two things maybe in Haverhill. Mm-hmm. 
uh, there was like some really sketchy warehouse in Lawrence that we went to. Oh wow! Yeah, I think that that factory actually caught on fire a few weeks after like we saw. I can't even remember the show we saw there. <laughs> different world though. Right, right. Totally different world. It's you know anything north or south of Boston. You know, it's it's different than Worcester County. Oh yes, I'll put yes. It that way, you know, like it, there's really not like the infrastructure to have a lot of shows, and if they they do have them, like at a place like Lowell, right? They're usually met with some sort of weird animosity from you know o- over aggressive, overzealous bouncers and stuff like that. Oh yeah, know? a lot of violence at those shows. I'm not <laughs> surprised. There was a lot of violence even in the late '80s, early '90s. I mean. That's why a lot of people didn't want to go to shows in Boston because they were just worried about gangs kind of going in and, you know, the hardcore kids not getting along with the metal kids. And yeah. just there was a lot of fights that would end up happening. So sometimes shows would get shut down right away, like in the middle of a show. And, yeah, it was it was you definitely had to keep your eye out and bring your friends along with you to kind of protect you for certain shows. And that's why I tended to go to more, you know, Sir Morgan's Cove shows in Worcester or club surrender was in waltham and there was some uh, bahama beach club in nashua had some shows and there was a club in uh, lowell called the underground that used to put on metal shows as well so really what was the scariest shit you think you ever saw back then because every <laughs> time you're like oh fuck <laughs> um i saw a lot of times where i saw arms broken heads bleeding you know people just a, a, a lot of fights where I even I knew I was like I need to be near the back of the situation because there were gangs and it, it, it was known that there were gangs that would specifically go to shows just to meet and beat people up and mm-hmm. I was like this isn't what metal and hardcore is all about you know it should be about unity it shouldn't be about fighting and you know kicking people in the head and stuff like that just so I would usually stay near the back. It's one of those things where I, I've noticed so many younger kids who are born in the mid-90s like have this like grand illusion of like the 80s being this like really like kumbaya type period in metal where, you know, everybody just got along brilliantly and, and you know, women were treated equally and stuff like that. Right, right. And it's really not the case at right. all. Right. Women had a hard time getting accepted. A lot of a lot of the eighties shows, it was ninety eight percent guys, two percent female. It was it wasn't an easy time as it is. I think it's easier today. Like it's more yeah. it's clo- it's getting closer to the 60 40 level than it is like 98 two. you know mm-hmm. i think sometimes some of the some of the different genres have helped i think like women are more accepting now of not just the clean vocals but a lot of the death metal vocals you know yeah. as you know with your band you, yeah. you have a female singer so yeah with abnormalities like i was talking to steve about this on a recent episode where it was like it's you know death metal is still a giant sausage fest it, you know, however, when we play shows, we we actually do fairly well with you know, like a female demographic, so to say. So, <clears throat> but like, there's just a lot of people I find lately like really have this like grand idea that like the '80s was like a complete fucking picnic. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, you. <laughs> This time's pretty sweet right now. I got 4G on my phone. Right. I, I could pretty much find any song in the world that, you know, at, at my fingertips. Right. You know, um, 
Christ, even just getting to a goddamn show. You right. know, like, I, I mean, like, I thought I was fortunate enough to be able to print out directions, you know, like 15 years ago. Right, you right. Know, now I, it, there's a guided fucking GPS telling me wh- what to do, you know? Yeah, when it comes to the music part, a lot of people don't realize in the 80s, there were times where you had to hope that there was a radio station that was going to play maybe like an hour of metal for you. If you didn't have a local music store to be able to check things out and a lot of times you couldn't even preview the stuff that was in the store they didn't have listening stations you had to guess based on the album covers if you thought something was going to be cool or not or maybe if your friend had it in his collection you could kind of gauge an idea of if it was going to be cool or not like today you can go on the internet and find whatever you want you know just put it into google or put it into youtube and boom it's there I'm definitely resentful for at a lot of the younger kids for having that fucking luxury. Right. You know, like deeply fucking resentful. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes I think it makes them a little less... They, they, they don't value the music as much, I think, as a result because they just feel like entitled that it's at their fingertips to get it whenever they want. Whereas, you know, when I was younger, I had to save up the allowance money to buy the records and if i got burned on buying a record oh well you know i would spend as much time as i could listening to the record so that hopefully i would like it because i spent you know seven eight nine ten dollars on the record and i didn't want to get burned so yeah totally totally well it's tough it's tough to hang like compilations man that was a big deal right you know because that was that was the best way to find several new bands that you never heard before right know. Because at least if you had 12 or 15 bands on there and you liked two or three, you won. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a lost act, though. I can't fucking remember the last compilation. Like, Metal Massacre, there was a new Metal Massacre that dropped um, yep. about a couple, a couple ago. years ago. Yep. Yeah, a lot of great bands on that. But they stopped doing Metal Massacre comps, or at least it felt like 20 years, I think. You know? Yeah, I think they reached a point where... Around 10 or 11, it started to get to the point where there were so many labels out that more people preferred just relying on what a label put out rather than compilations anymore. Mm-hmm. It made more sense definitely like during the 80s to discover a lot of these bands that were only putting out demo tapes. You know, It was the only way for them to get mass acceptance unless they were a part of a tape trading circuit, which I happened to be a part of, but I was like towards the... End of the 80s on the tape trading thing. Mm-hmm. So what was that? A lot of grinding through want ads? and What ended up happening with that was um, when I was 16, I wrote a letter to, uh, there was a national magazine called Metal Mania, and they did an article on tape trading. And they said, you know, we're interested in starting like a pen pal club if there are enough people that are interested in it. So I just you know decided in computer class to type out a letter and say hey i'm interested you know i really like this tape trading article i'm interested in doing it and these are the tapes that i have available and i didn't have that big of a collection for demos i had like a metallica uh bootleg from 1986 the day that cliff burton died in sweden and i had some demos from like some local bands from Massachusetts. Well, my letter gets published and all of a sudden I got like 150 responses within two months. Huh. I'll, I'll be happy to tape trade with you. Da, da, da. And it wasn't just people from the United States. It was people from all over the world. Really? So all of a sudden, like my collection grew exponentially and I, I was tape trading from probably like 1988 to like 1995. I was a solid tape trader. Really? 
So fuck, man. God damn. I can't I mean I just bought a spindle of fucking CDs the other day and that kind of took me back enough. I mean, right. You know, I I do a tape label and all, but like it's I mean, fuck, it's I I really just don't have time to sit around and do mixtapes on Right, right. And I I love doing them, but passing one off to somebody is, you know, that's a serious fucking you, you know, uh commitment to, oh yeah you know because <laughs> basically like somebody would somebody would want roughly two or three 90 minute tapes of material that you had and you would do they would do the same for you in trade but it takes that much that amount of time to basically like pull the stuff out set up the double tape recorder tape their stuff write write the j cards so that they know exactly all the song listings that you have then you know actually putting it in you know a mailing package sending it off it's not the same like today everybody can just press a button and get their music you know instantly through the internet it took effort to do the tape trading and i think that's what made it more valuable is you really looked forward to hearing stuff in the mail that you had seen people talking about you know i was there during the first surge of of death metal when bands like entombed and suffocation and unleashed and grave and all those bands were coming out so i got to hear all that demo stuff back in that time before they were all signed and it was it was fresh music i mean and it was exciting to hear like that movement come up same thing with when when you know, black metal replaced death metal. It was the same thing. Like, it was just very exciting to see all those changes happen. And you could hear these bands through tape trading. So how did being a tape trader shape you into becoming an all-out writer? A writer, big, yes. Yeah, like a metal writer. You know, you write a lot of reviews and you do interviews with that, uh, that rhetoric. Like, how did that discipline you to become that? What ended up happening was... Um, Living in a small town in Winchin and didn't really, I knew a lot of people that were into metal, but there weren't a lot of people that were playing music. And I grew up playing keyboards, which in the 80s was kind of like a big no-no, unless you were Dio or Black Sabbath. It was like nobody wanted keyboards and metal back then. So um, I, I wanted to contribute to the scene. And the way I looked at it was when I, was, when I started tape trading, I was tape trading with people that were writing for fanzines. Um, and dead rhetoric right now it's a webzine because most most fanzines have kind of turned into online webzines there's not a lot of people that are doing physical product uh, when it comes to fanzines but i started meeting different writers through the tape trading and then they asked me they're like would you be interested in writing for us okay you're willing to give me a shot all right and then they would send me 10 or 15 different items and I would write about them and because this was pre-internet you basically had to write you type out my reviews and send them in the mail and the same thing with the interviews is I would I'd have to get a tape recorder and you know tape the interview off the phone and then transcribe it but send it through them in the mail and once I started writing for um, the first fanzine I wrote for was Curious Goods um, out of California and one of the writers, Jerry Rutherford, he, he joined Metal Maniac staff later in the 90s. Then I started writing for Comedy of Errors, which was Eula Garrett's web uh, magazine. And he went to Century Media, wrote for Metal Maniacs. Uh, Ill Literature was Marco Barberi's uh, magazine. I wrote for his magazine as well. So I just, all of a sudden, like during the late 80s, early 90s, started spreading out writing for different magazines. And then I got the itch to develop my own, which was Spectrum Magazine, um, probably like from 93 to 96. And then 
things started changing. We, I started to see the scene started changing more into online stuff. Yeah. Um, I became an editor for a magazine called Snake Pit, which focused more on the history of heavy metal. We would do like nine page interviews on Omen or eight page interviews on Sacrifice, 10 page interviews on Forbidden, like more of a behind the music for those kind of bands. Even yeah. if they weren't together, we would still like do their whole history and they would be impressed about us being metal geeks, knowing all this information about bands. But I didn't know you did Snake Pit. Yep. Yeah. Well, what ended up happening with Snake Pit was it was it was originally Frank Stover who wrote for Voices from the Dark Side. It was his magazine. And after four issues, he was like burnt out. He's like, I can't do this anymore. I started contributing with issue number three, just doing interviews. And then I started doing reviews and interviews with issue four. We didn't want to see the magazine end. So a writer from France, a writer from Austria, myself, we pulled the money together to put the next issue out and then basically just kept turning the money into the next issue. So I stayed with it from issue number five to issue number 12, which was about three and a half years. Damn, man. It takes a lot to do a fucking zine. It does. A lot of people don't realize we, we lost thousands of dollars. <laughs> it's, it's a labor of love. Yeah. And when you get those packages at your house with hundreds of magazines and you have to mail them everywhere and the post office people hate you because you've got this big mm -hmm. <laughs> packet, you know, big packages you have to mail out to all these different mail orders and, you know, record stores. We, we had different record stores that would even even today uh, Armageddon shop down in Providence still carries Snake Pit, which I'm kind of proud of. Yeah, I fuck. I think Nuclear War now had some too. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. I think they were coming with seven inches too. Yeah. Yep. So you would fucking produce a seven inch with the magazine. Right. I mean, that's like that. That's like an oddly sort of like for the mid nineties. That's pretty pioneer in my right. opinion. Like, right. Because vinyl was all but dead during that era. Definitely. Especially with a forty five format. You right. Know? And now it seems like every format has come back. As, as you said, you're running a, a tape label. Like I never expected cassettes to come back into vogue, but it's just as popular now as, yeah. as vinyl. It's just amazing to me that like the physical format is coming back, maybe not necessarily to the numbers of the 80s, but there is a collector's market and there is mm -hmm. a market for it. I heard um, there was an article from that, that Apple's talking about getting rid of downloads within two to five years wow so just streaming no more fucking you know just single track and anything you know like you, you just absolute streaming top right. to bottom that's just crazy right <laughs> i i i understand streaming in certain aspects but then there's other aspects that i'm like why wouldn't you want to own the physical medium mm. why wouldn't you want to be able to have the right to play it wherever you want and, you know, if you want to listen to something in your car, you want to listen to something in your room, why would you want to be tethered to, like, a device to stream your your music? More or less, yeah. What's it's interesting, though, is that, I mean, Bandcamp's pretty sweet, though. Oh, I, I, I love Bandcamp. I, and I think Bandcamp has been, I don't know if you've looked into our site, but we have one of the writers basically does a monthly... Uh, roundup on on his latest finds on Bandcamp, and so we probably discover 150 200 bands a year just through Bandcamp alone. So it's 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 definitely a great tool, and I think more independent bands should use Bandcamp. Yeah, it's going right to the artist. Um, I think that they have to be probably paying out the most, right? 
and they're very proud about that. I mean, they've always made it. I mean, just in one month alone, it's millions and millions of dollars that are coming through that site. You right, know? right. Only getting more popular. Um, see, that's the thing, though. I like the digital for that fucking foreign band mm-hmm. that I can't get. You know, they only had 200 copies of the EP that were sold in Germany. Right. So here I am, you know. It's like, yeah. You still want to support it. Right. And that's what's interesting is that I find, like, even there have been situations where I have the fucking uh, CD, the vinyl, and the tape. But you know what? I'm going to – I'll shove another five bucks towards the band right. just so I can have it on my phone now. Oh, you yeah. Know? Like, I mean, back in the day, I probably wore out three or four copies of my favorite albums by my favorite bands. Mm-hmm. I mean, Iron Maiden was kind of like my band from – 83 to 89 even as the thrash era was going like iron maiden was my favorite band of all time for those six years so i wore out like power slave and somewhere in time three copies of the vinyl because i was just playing it consistently again and again and again and again and again so i would just rebuy stuff and then i'd be like oh new format there's a cd now okay well i need the cd in addition to the vinyl so what was it like hearing virtual uh, XI and the X Factor <laughs> as a diehard Iron Maiden fan because I wasn't there for that. It was hard. It was hard. I mean, we knew there were changes that were happening because if you listen to No Prayer for the Dying and Fear of the Dark, it both of those came out in the early 90s. And while there are many good tracks on, on, on both those records, you kind of knew that because of thrash and the energy things had kind of changed in the maiden landscape so i wasn't surprised that they got blaze but definitely with steve taking over the production um both records were very hard for me to handle um i think the x factor is the better of the two records yeah i agree um i i definitely wish that steve had decided to put the production in other people's hands i think at that point Buddy of mine says that X Factors, I think it's, the expression he uses is that it's their most dark and brooding album. Right, right. And that's all I could think of. It's just the, this weird anger to it. Because I always felt that Judas, my guide, is the angriest Iron Maiden song ever. Right. Which actually is like the last thing they ever do with Bruce, right? Right, right. And I always felt like those lyrics were actually about him breaking up with the band mm-hmm. or I, you know i've never heard that confirmed or whatever but like so for them to go from this really fucking juvenile fucking example of fucking 80s fucking just power right and just fucking grandeur into this weird compressed digitized fucking band that i don't know it, it, it's just an odd i've always always struggled with those albums man right because so, I mean, even in the even in the eighties, they were experimenting with the whole guitar synthesizer thing mm-hmm. during the somewhere in time seventh son of a seventh son days. But people still accepted the fact that they were trying to keep up with the technology and keep up with the demands. And I think they handled it better than Judas Priest because people really crucified Judas Priest for Turbo and the direction that they went in for Turbo and ram it down. But yeah, definitely in the nineties, it was a different Maiden, and I think they were trying to 
find a, a new audience. I mean, they went from being an arena band to basically playing like the Orpheum on those tours. Yeah, they, exactly. They they struggled to find an audience here, and I mean, Headbangers Ball going down the tubes didn't didn't help them at all because there was no major media support for those records. I, I remember during the mid '90s, there were a lot of bands that I had to basically buy on import. Blind Guardian didn't have a record deal until the late '90s in the United States. All those records you had to buy, you know, Axel Rudy Pell, Symphony X, you had to buy all that stuff on import. There was no U.S. label touching that stuff because grunge was big, alternative was big, the new metal scene was big, and, like, all that stuff went out the window in the United States. Fucking Axel Rudy Pell. I haven't heard that shit in fucking forever, it feels like. That dude's great. Yeah. Is and, he one of the best, you think? I mean, I'm not like a power metal connoisseur. Right. But, like, those bands you were just you know, listening there, like Blind Guardian, those are, like, quintessential power metal German bands and stuff. Right. Where do you, where do you think that lies? Like, where would Axel Rudy Pell lie on, on, like, a German big three sort of fucking scale? Um, I mean, I think he's definitely, like, one of the biggest guitar heroes for Germany. He can definitely... He doesn't... Play. He's never played out in the United States before, and he's been made. They've been made offers for him to play, but I don't know for whatever reason he's never come over to play. But I know, like when he goes out on tour in Germany, he basically can sell out like fifteen hundred to two thousand seat places still. And yeah, it's just he's one of those guitar heroes, kind of considered like the Richie Blackmore of today's generation. Yeah, Spe- specifically for power metal, though. Right, you know? right. Is he a seven string player? No, he's a six string. Six, okay. Um, going back though, Judas Priest, Maiden. I really, I those fucking mid '90s albums fucked me up so bad with Iron Maiden right. and the late '80s stuff. I really can't get into even the new era of Bruce stuff. Right, like, it's strictly '80s for me, and I don't know, man. I I, I find it interesting that. Um, a lot of people are so down on Priest because, frankly, I think that they had the better catalog at the end of the day, sir. Mm-hmm. I totally think that. Even with the Ripper years? <sighs> I'd probably take those albums over fucking the other ones. I would take the fucking... Rip- I would take a Demolition over a fucking... A, a Virtual XI. Right. I would. Mm-hmm. That's just me. That's, you know... Fucking, like, what is it, The Angel and the Demon or The Gambler? Fucking, right. those songs just drag, guy. Right, right. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I got to be honest. I don't listen to much of the 90s or the, the current stuff. I mean, yeah. Brave New World, I'll listen to occasionally. Wicker Man, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. But definitely, like for me, the first seven records are definitely where it's at. Because I was fortunate that I had neighborhood kids that... It was it was a set of brothers that introduced me to Iron Maiden in like 1983. They had you know Eddie posters on the wall, and they were they played uh, Made in Japan and they played Peace of Mind. So I heard both the Diano era and the Dickinson era. So I was into both right at the same time. Right on. And then all of a sudden I'm like, hey, which record do I go buy at the record store? Uh, let me buy the Number of the Beast. So that was my first Maiden purchase was the Number of the Beast. Oh shit. And then. My parents looked at the cover and were scared and worried <laughs> and, oh, my God, our son is getting into this devil-worshipping stuff. And really? they sat down and had the talk and they were like, look, you know, we're really worried about what, what you're listening to. And as long as you keep your grades up and do what you're supposed to do, we don't have a problem with it. But if you do, we're going to take it all away. Well, I got to keep a lot of stuff because I was a straight-A student. So I, I definitely... Uh, 
when people say that heavy metal is kind of not not for the intelligent people of the world, I, I dispute that claim. I think like mo- the the most the smartest people I know are, like listen to that type of music, listen to a lot of heavy music, and listen to a lot of eclectic music. Yeah, I think you definitely need a little bit of a higher intelligence just to process what the fuck's going on. Right. You know. I tell it to my wife, though. You know, there's certain death metal that just comes on shuffle, and she's like, what is this? I'm like, honey, it's an advanced listen. <laughs> exactly. All right? You can't just, you know, you can't go from fucking, you know, Iron Maiden, you know, into fucking Brodequin, you know, some shit. You know? But what's like, interesting is there's a lot of kids that are getting into metal that their first bands are the ones that kind of scream at them or are, don't have the melodic vocals. Yes. So they end up going back. And then they go, wow, this is really cool stuff. Whereas me growing up, I only heard the melodic stuff and then basically thrash, the vocals started getting heavier, death, the vocals started getting lower and growly. So my shift was completely different than what a lot of the kids experience today. You know, a lot of the kids want the the vocals to be unintelligible or just like very heavy and vicious. So they're not used to a, a melodic you know, type of voice. But then when they hear it, sometimes they're just like, whoa, this is totally different. This blows me away. So. Isn't it interesting that so many people nowadays have fallen so hard for forgotten Black Sabbath albums like Born Again? Right. And, and uh, you know, like Tear, mm-hmm. Cross Purposes. I don't get why the Tony Martin years are disrespected. Because if you really listen to them, they're just as good to me as the Dio and the Aussie records. And as you said, with Born Again, I think a lot of people look at that as kind of the lost stepchild record just because Ian Gillen is singing on it and the production's a little bit different. But there are some really good songs on that record. And you kind of wish that there had been another record to see like what direction they would go in. Because the funny thing was the first time I saw Sabbath was right after he left and Glenn Hughes was in the band on the seventh star. And I was at the Worcester Centrum show that basically was his last show before he got kicked out of the band. Really? Yeah. There was 4,000 people at the show. The, the, the bill was anthrax wasp and, and Sabbath and wasp canceled because Blackie Lawless had laryngitis. So oh. only 4,000 people were at the show compared to what probably would have been a sold out show. Cause more people would have stayed for wasp and anthrax just blew them off the stage that they were touring for spreading the disease and they just really? blew them away and something was really off with glenn i couldn't tell what what and basically they kicked him out the next day because he was too coked out and that's why really? yeah <laughs> wow so that was his last show ian gillen's last show it was that uh, glenn hughes oh i'm show. sorry glenn hughes yeah fuck glenn hughes is such a great singer dude yeah it, which is amazing because you know you listen to him today he's still got the voice today so i'm glad he he got off of drugs and and you know it's still performing very well i think he's 70 now and he can still like belt it out which is great that's fantastic everything that guy does is fucking gold I'm not like super devoted though. Don't, I mean, don't quote me on that. Right, like, right. You know, like the black, uh, black country communion and all that stuff. Right. Like, I'm not like, the, you know, the, the keenest person in the world. To Have that. you listened to his uh, stuff he did with John Norum, Face the Truth album? No. Yeah, that's really good. Another what? another '80s record you you need to. John Norum. Yep. Who's the, uh, that? Guitar player from Europe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Basically, I, when John Norum left. After the final countdown, he did a series of solo records, and on one of them, Glenn Hughes did like five songs, and he's fantastic. Really? I never knew that. I never knew that. See, I don't know that much about like even Europe and stuff. Like, 
you know, like there's you know kids nowadays. Like you didn't just listen to that, like, right? Fucking like in two thousand in the year two thousand, <laughs> right? Right. You know, and I'm I was like a death metal kid with dying fetus. It's like you know everything. You know, we're hanging out listening to Skinless's first album and right. Cryptopsy. Dudes like us did not sit around and talk about fucking melodic old fucking heavy metal and stuff. You know? Right. And, right. And, you know, it's it, much to your point of what you're talking about. It took me years to figure out. The brilliance of accept, unfortunately. Yeah, it's like, and once I got into that stuff, I just, you know, went completely over down the, the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, because that stuff's so good, man. You got your Udo shirt on, definitely. definitely. He's coming around on tour again, right? Yeah. It's like the final thing he's doing for. Uh... He's doing the final tour of all except songs. He's finally retiring them once and for all because he's got like 15 solo albums and he's tired of always pulling out accept stuff and his i've interviewed him five times his philosophy is you know what if you want to see accept accept is is out right now and mark tonello is doing accept songs just as well so if you want to see accept you can go see accept and if you want to see me from this point forward after this tour i'm going to do udo stuff i love the new accept stuff and i was actually into tt quick prior to this yeah yeah that's a criminally overlooked band. Medal of Honor. Yes. Yeah, Medal of Honor is a fantastic album. Yep. God damn. Yeah, they were another New Jersey band that yeah. basically kind of slipped through the cracks. I mean, there's there's a lot of those bands that people now are starting to pay attention to that, you know, 15, 20 years ago never gave them the time of day. And now it's like you see everybody kind of going back and trying to recreate the 80s. And it's like it's something that can't be recreated as much as people think of nostalgia you know they give these bands some credit for what they did but also like start accepting the fact that they're writing good new material as you said like accept their their new their the last four albums with mark tonillo are just as good as what they were doing during the restless and wild you know balls to the walls days i i, I think they're actually better sir they're more developed frankly. yeah 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 like and i mean that's like they just that fuck they got better right they fucking got better Right, a lot better. Like they're not like every song is like metal hat fucking on steroids. Right, it's awesome. <laughs> well, what 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 helped them is they were smart enough to go with Andy Sneap for a producer right out of the gate. Who's Andy Sneap? What's he do? He um he used to be the guitar player for Sabbath, and um basically he became a producer after that. So he was producing records for Nevermore and bands along those lines. And Except was interested in finding a modern producer, so they found him. And one of the things he did is he sat them down and really had them analyze their catalog and look at the qualities that were quintessential except songs. And Wolf Hoffman, when I interviewed him, he said there were things that we never really discovered that we didn't know were made us accept. You know, kind of the neoclassical stuff. Sometimes the guitar melodies or the, the vocal harmonies have this distinct German flavor. And they really thought about that. And that's why I think they really focused and honed in on that on these latest records. And that's why the fans are like, hey, this is the accept that we remember. Yeah. Bombastic choruses. Fucking, you know, just like that. What the fuck is that noise? Wow. <laughs> that sounds interesting. <laughs> Some sort of rattling. Fuck it, it's the demons talking about except fucking um no that's the thing they have those big bombastic fucking choruses you know like sort of like that like fucking their songs are made for being live right. I I always remember there's that quote in that Metallica documentary with Bob Rock he's like you never made an album that sounds like you're live right right 
and except has this fucking ability to write these songs where it's like man they could fucking you know rust on that bridge and then just do like a bass line with like the the you know kick drum underneath it because that's designed to have everybody clapping their hands at that pot for right. fucking five minutes right. while they introduce the band you know like right. fuck nobody writes songs like that anymore <laughs> definitely definitely i mean it it is a lost art and i think it's something that bands need to really hone in on more is it's okay to dissect your music and think about how things flow together don't just like throw five riffs in a song and go okay here's a song think about how it should flow from one part to the other think about melodies the melodies don't necessarily have to come from the vocals as you as you notice with accept a lot of times the harmony the the melody comes from the music part my um big revelation for metal albums that from like old albums I missed out on that I now I think is great and right. now I'm hoping that everybody gets behind it is fucking eat the heat yeah by accept yeah I, I think that's a badass album dude there, there's a couple clunkers on it don't right. get me wrong right but there's some something like fucking XT, ecstasy I can't say XTC XTC yeah yep. <laughs> <laughs> there's that uh, fucking generation class right hellhammer right Damn, man, there's some great songs on that oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Even Russian Roulette didn't get the just rewards that after, you know, after having blockbusters like Restless and Wild, Balls to the Wall, and Metal Heart, things started going a little bit south with Russian Roulette. But, yeah, Eat the Heat never really got the credit that it deserved because of the fact that they went more for an American singer and some of the commercial aspects to it. And definitely the look changed a little bit. So yeah. they were trying to fit in with what was going on in America at the time. Cinderella. There were a lot of bands that were chasing that kind of thing. And unfortunately, they should have just stuck to their guns and just stick to the you know the musical part and let the image kind of take care of itself. Like I th- noticed the bands that tried to change with the times really didn't work out as well as as the, they had hoped it's crazy though that fucking like honest rock and roll singing like udo dirk schneider and like a brian johnson and like the dude from cinderella like that's an era that has not come back right like a technique even like buck cherry i think was the only one that can't kind of came close to it in the past 20 years right know? right yeah it, it is interesting that we're we're kind of at a loss for good singers and not just that, but sometimes like what 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 constitutes a rock star? Like, you know, who are yeah. who are the heroes? Because you got all these bands that are retiring or unfortunately passing away just because of old age. What's going to replace that? I, I, that's one of the questions that I often ask a lot of the younger bands or even some of the veteran bands. Like what's going to happen when these when these final bands retire? Yeah. You know, who's going to fill that void? When Metallica retires, who's going to fill that void to play like a festival or an arena and be able to get people out to it? Or is metal going to move to more of just a small theater that that's how big it's going to get is just the small theater thing? I wonder if it's going to be small theater just because I, I think that all music is actually unfortunately sort of on the way out. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Although it's pretty cool that Maiden can still do like Great Woods or something like that, right? You know, like right. Even King Diamond playing the Orpheum, like, and we mentioned that about how that was like a downtrend for the Maiden era, playing the Orpheum, right? King Diamond playing the Orpheum two years ago, I thought was a huge victory for the dude. Oh yeah, yeah, huge victory. Fucking oh yeah, like I remember in the '90s he was struggling to get 100, 150 people to shows. Fuck, really? Yeah. 
because again, it was a, it was a type type of thing that people just had moved on. They'd moved on to heavier genres or had moved on to like alternative music. I mean, I was twenty when Nirvana took off, and I saw the whole thing kind of just go down south, where metal was just a bad word. And I interviewed Kai Hansen from Gamma Ray, and he said that he couldn't he couldn't get a record deal in the United States, even though they had played here with Halloween and. He goes, people didn't want double bass. People didn't want guitar solos anymore. It was just a really, really tough time. So I'm I'm thrilled that King Diamond is back. I want him to come out with a new record. My last, not last year, but the last two years, we do an end of the year list. And my thing that I was looking most forward to was him putting out a new record. I'm still waiting for it. <laughs> but I know he's been touring a lot. So that's, that's still a plus. I saw him on the uh, Mayhem Fest, the last Mayhem Fest that he did with Slayer. I'm pretty sure he's got a, a live DVD yeah. set for release, I think, for this year. Yeah, I think that's the next thing that's coming out. But I know behind the scenes, like, he's finally, him and Andy LaRock are finally working on, like, the next King Diamond record. So I'd, I would hope by the end of 2018, maybe beginning of 2019, we'll finally get, like, a new studio record from, from him. Uh, there's something about it. It's the heaviest shit in the world to me. Maybe more so on the Merciful Fate side, though. Right, right. The Merciful Fate is just the heaviest shit. Like, E-standard, fuck, man. Right. I was listening to Dead Again the other day. Fucking, um, what's that fuck, track two on that album? The Night, I think yep. it is. Oh, God, dude. There's some fucking absolute magic moments in that Merciful Fate catalog. But I felt, so, I was a little let down with, like, Fate, uh, was it Face of Evil? And Denner and Sherman. Oh, yeah, like yeah, like, yeah. I just, I don't know. It, it, that's what's so telling, though, about the significance of King's career. It's right. Like, you know, his solo career really is solid. Like, I'm sure when he was struggling, Spider's Lullaby and Voodoo era, you know, like, put 100 people on tour and shit. Fuck. Right. I can't imagine that nowadays. But, like, I, I don't know, dude. Because those are still kick-ass albums. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. But of course, most people know him for Abigail, Conspiracy, you know, The Eye. Those are the, the records, them. Those are the records that obviously people consider the classic King Diamond records. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely have followed his catalog. And he's another one that you interview and basically you ask a question and he'll take 20 minutes to answer one question. So he, really? he's a fountain of information. You ever been over to Europe? No, it's one of the things I would like to do. Um, it's definitely on my bucket list because I have friends who have often come here for U.S. festivals, and it blows me away that they'll want to travel over here when I'm like, you have the best festivals in the world. What are you <laughs> doing over here? They'll come over here for there, – there was a festival before Prague Power developed. Um, it kind of came out of the uh, – Power Mad Festival, which was done by a guy named Keith Menzer, who used to play bass in a band called Mystic Force from Maryland. So he did a Power Progressive Festival for five years from like 1997 to 2001. We would have European journalists come over and, you know, stay for the weekend. I'm like, what are you doing here for this festival? Well, there's all these bands that are like underground bands that then never will play Europe so we come over because we want to cover them and we want to see them live I'm like this is completely strange to me and completely foreign to me yeah but that's how dedicated they are to metal in comparison and they have the best yeah. festivals in the world I remember Vakken when it first started was 500 people now <laughs> it's 75,000 people every year that's nuts that's nuts 
Yeah, meanwhile, we're here. <laughs> well, like, I don't want to go to Fayetteville. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's people- crazy. Like, the, I know some German dudes that just, like, they go to, like, Little, you know, like they just—I—I I, I don't know—they—they they support like better than anybody else I know. Right. But like in the end, it's like, wow, you're just going to Vegas, like. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they'll—they'll <laughs> they'll have enough vacation time where they'll be like, they'll map out, okay, I'm going to this festival or or I'm going to see this band play like five, six shows on their tour and yeah. stuff like that. That never—that dedication doesn't happen in America. In America, sometimes you can't get people out of their house to go to a show, and it's like five minutes around the corner for them. Yeah, no, that was fucked up. Whereas I'll travel, you know, I was living in Winchin and Mass, going to Power Mad, which was in Baltimore, and that's an eight-hour drive each way. Mm-hmm. But, but I wanted to see these bands. I wanted to see Jag Panzer. I wanted to see Evergrey's first U.S. appearance. I wanted to see Raven, Manila Road. I wanted to see these bands. And out of that, there was another festival called the Classic Metal Festival. The first year was in Kalamazoo, Michigan. There were 200 people that went. And I would say 120 of those 200 people were people from the UK, Germany, Belgium, Japan, Greece. Because Manila Road was playing this festival. And they thought they would never get the chance to see Manila Road play live. I was watching people with banners crying in front of Manila Road play. And I'm like... This is totally different than what you normally see in the United States. And I, I, I wish that dedication would happen here. But the problem is with festivals, getting people out of the house to go, go to a festival. Like, it has to be something special and unique for them to do it. And Isn't Manila Road, like, the entire Manila Road catalog, one of the most joyous little discoveries I think any metalhead can find? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't compare it to anything else. Right. I don't know how to even like. It's just it's just one of those things. It's like you kind of got. It's it's like a. It feels like a cheat in a video game almost. <laughs> it's like well, this this one's off the map. Right. It's right. Not, and not everybody knows about this either. You know. Like, right. Fucking like you, you know most of the people who knew this shit back then didn't even know about this shit. Then, right. You know. So it's like. Oh yeah, Manila Road was definitely a cult band. You had really had to be into them, and now it's kind of. A little trendy in a in a sense to like them. But That's what I'm saying too. It's like it's like a, a standardized thing, right? A fucking stand. It's like, well, you don't have to. You never heard Crystal Logic, dude? Like, fuck off! I didn't hear that till I went to Germany ten years ago, right? And I couldn't find a fucking edition of it. You know, it's like, right? That's back when like downloading was like really useful. You yeah, know? yeah, it's, yeah. You know, like in Napster and all that stuff. You know, right? So that's how you found it. But. Yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with. I wouldn't put somebody down just because they were younger and didn't discover it right away. I mean, you're naturally going to have a certain entry point and then you can decide whether you want to move forward or whether you want to move back and learn about the history of heavy metal. But I wouldn't put somebody down for not knowing Manila Rhodes' third record, you know, or, or, or having it in their catalog. I mean, there's stuff that even I don't get the chance to hear or listen to and I work a third shift job by myself eight hours a night. It, 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 there's just so much music out there. There's not enough time in the day to listen to everything that I want to listen to. I totally agree, too. I try, I, I, it's kind of uh, one thing that drives me nuts with, with journalists. And I think everybody's guilty of it, though. But it's the end of the year list. It's like 25 albums. And it's like, I don't get that. Because, like... If I get into something, dude, I'm in it deep for like fucking two or three weeks. Right, right. And that's right. all I got, you know? And like, 
I mean, I'll be honest with my list. What we have, we have to do year end lists, and ours are pretty comprehensive. It's like we do the top fifteen. I think we did this year the top twelve albums of the year, the top ten songs, and then we do like best concert and best artwork and stuff. So it, it's pretty comprehensive. But when it comes to my top twelve, I basically put the top twelve albums I listen to the most. Right. It's the, how can I quantify like what necessarily is the best? Best, I t- I, I totally agree. That's the worst. It all comes down to perf- personal preference and how much you fucking played it. Right. You know? What was your number one? For My 17? number one was Night Demon. Really? Yeah. Darkness Remains. A fucking was... Ventura band. Yeah. Brilliant band. Yeah. Probably the hardest working American band in my opinion. Right oh yeah. Now. Yeah. Right now they're on tour with Accept overseas. Yeah. They, are. <laughs> they totally are. I know. I know Jarvis pretty well. I've interviewed him like three times through the years, and he's always a great interview. Like I. I'll ask him a question and he's another one that will go off for like 10 minutes and just give me his honest opinion on things. And they basically have like a 10 year plan of how they want to, I sense the way they're building their band. They, they want to be able to build to the level of a Metallica if they could. I mean, I don't know if that's ever going to exist. I don't know if there's ever going to be a band that can get as big as Metallica with the way that the streaming era and the download era is. Um, I would love to see it happen again, but I think in America, there's no major media push, and a lot of kids feel like, you know, they need to be spoon-fed sometimes what what is cool, and I I don't think that that's going to happen ever again. I don't think major media is ever going to jump on things the way that it it was in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, even now, it's, like, all about what's trending on YouTube and stuff like that, you know? like Right. it's, It's a little bit different. I think most kids discover their music through like Spotify, YouTube, and you know yeah. things like that. They all, they just put a name in and go, oh, let me let me check this out, and then go down the rabbit hole from there. But true, it's interesting because I think what works for Night Demon though is that they're actually unabashedly doing traditional heavy metal, right, from England, and ultimately. There's so many bands from that era that should have fucking been way bigger than. Oh that. yeah, yeah. Diamond Head should have been fucking a huge right. fucking band. Right. But the fact is, is that you could, I could fucking play Diamond Head to my father who's seventy, and he'd be, like, oh, it's not that bad actually. You know, compared, <laughs> it really right. isn't. That stuff really fucking holds up. Right. I don't know. There you were a lot of bands. There were a lot of bands from the seventies that that the and seventies and eighties and that new wave of British heavy metal era that should have been bigger than they were. Yeah. I mean. The biggest ones, obviously, are, are, are Maiden and, and, and Saxon and Raven, but their Angel Witch should have been another band that was huge, and mm-hmm. Tigers of Pantang should have been huge, Diamond Head, Blitzkrieg, you know, Jaguar. There's all kinds of bands. You, know, you, could, you could buy the New Wave of British Heavy Metal Encyclopedia. It's like a 600-page book, and you would discover bands that only had a demo or a 7-inch that were killer that should have probably been signed, but it was just due to the the glut of bands and trying to figure out who was going to make their mark. Is that really a book? Yeah. Wh- who who uh, published it? Um, I think it was self-published, but I know you can find it on Amazon.com. I think okay. Macmillan is the, the author. It's like a 650-page book. and Straight reference. Yep. Fucking right. A to Z of uh, New Wave of British Heaven Metal. Oh, shit. Um... How about that band, Rock Scalibur? You heard them? Oh, yeah. It's the drummer of Manila Road. Just yep. basically 
doing all new obscure new British heavy metal covers. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Fucking brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes he picks the obvious ones, and then there are ones that like you've never heard of that band because it was just a demo recording that he had. That I think there was one on one of the albums they did a Saxon song that basically was only a partial saxon song that they got permission from saxon to basically like write the second half of the song and put on the record come on yeah. really yeah. <laughs> it was like an outtake on yep. some bootleg and it was like an like... outtake from i think 79 or 80 and they basically wrote the second half of the song and put it on the record and really what's up with that band praying mantis i don't necessarily know what's going on sometimes they they do reunion shows in uh, Japan and in the UK, but I don't think that they've put anything out in like two or three years. Because like, they, weren't they like a thing years ago or something? Like, I, I really don't even know what they're all about. To be honest, I, I love everything I've heard from them. Yeah, just another new wave of British heavy metal band that sometimes, now that things are are back in vogue with kind of the history of heavy metal, I think new wave of British heavy metal has benefited from that, and there are a lot of obscure bands that are getting a second look that maybe didn't get that second look so they end up playing reunion shows you know the keep it true festival in germany usually likes to have one or two of those reunion new wave british heavy metal reunions and then all of a sudden japan will be interested because they went over well there and i gotta get to japan man yeah it seems like i don't know and that's a whole other thing like that is it uh the visual j they yep. call it yeah which is like this like crazy glam power metal shred type stuff right am i explaining that properly yeah like, how would you explain visual jada say the probably the way that you explained it i mean it's definitely a mixture of the glam look but the sound is definitely more power metal melodic metal that that type of thing these guys got hair that looks like a fucking peacock <laughs> they definitely know, like do the whole like a turkey bouquet or some shit like that Definitely. But like uh, Sakima 2 is one of the bands I know. Fucking um, Christ. X Japan is probably the big popular pick. Did you watch the documentary on X Japan? No, I didn't know there was. Yep. Really? There's there's a documentary on X Japan. They kind of go through the whole scenario of uh, some of the members leaving. And I think when, was it the bass player who committed suicide? Yeah, I think one one of the members committed suicide. And then how they basically have made it through all of these challenges and and struggles and trying to make it here in the United States. Like it's always been their goal to be big in the United States, even though they're like superstars in Japan. And they just can't fucking break yet. So they're still doing it. Yep. Fuck. Wow. So did they live here? No, 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 no. They basically come, come here on tour, but I didn't know that they fucking come here on tour. What do they do? Like fucking video game festivals or something? Like, Well, I guess over in Japan, they're big enough that they play like 5,000, 10,000 seat arenas. Yeah. But I think here, like the documentary uh, talks about the time that they played Madison Square Garden. So what happened there? Um, it, went, it went well. I mean, I, th- I think it was sold out because there's enough interest, especially in New York City, with the diverse population and you know the Japanese culture and, and people fascinated with Japanese culture that they were able to sell out Madison Square Garden. Oh, shit. See, my favorite Japanese band, and I got a little tripped up when you said Andy Sneap, because I like the Japanese Sabat. Right, right, right. Which is like, 
fucking an amazing band to me that has the most daunting discography of anything you could possibly collect, in my opinion. Right, right. Did you ever get into them by chance? Um, I'm familiar with them. I mean, most of the heavier genres, I tended to stick to more of the European and the American bands than I did like the Japanese bands. When it came to the Japanese bands, I was more into like loudness, Ezio, Anthem, more the melodic side of things or the progressive side of things there's a band called vigilante from uh, japan that's really good in the kind of the progressive dream theater kind of mold really see i know nothing else about japanese but i, I don't know sai yeah which is an amazing band it's kind of like genre list so to say right you know? right right uh sabat and like you know defiled yeah, yeah. <laughs> vomit remnants you right know? right like i'm pretty basic with it like so that's the thing like that there's this whole little world and like i know matty freeman's over there like surviving like yep. just playing guitar on tv or something like, right yeah he's a superstar over there i mean he's he's fluent in japanese he hosts game shows over there and he's like a superstar like that's why he really didn't feel the need to come back to megadeth even though Everybody wanted the Rust in Peace lineup back together. He, yeah, he can make a living in Japan, and he loves the Japanese culture, and that's why he stays there. Yeah, it's ah, a beautiful way to live. Can't argue against that. It's a little simple over there. Japanese people are very healthy. They live long, prosperous lives. Right, right. It's gotta be good for you somehow. So, what have you been working on for this year coming up here, 2018? Um, basically, I, I try to write five to seven reviews a week and then do interviews in between. I mean, when when cycles come up for, when album promo cycles come up, I, I do as many interviews as I can with the bands that are going to be coming out with stuff. So uh, earlier today, there was uh, the new Crown album is coming out on Metal Blade in, in March, so I put in for an interview with uh, the guitarist Marco. So we'll see if that comes to pass. Um, and then do the mixture of interviews with local bands in addition to national bands. Because I, I feel like Dead Rhetoric, one of the things we try to do is give as much coverage as possible to the independent bands in addition to the signed bands. And a lot of websites don't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll, I did an interview with Epicenter at uh, a show in Greenfield a couple weeks ago. And... I enjoy doing that for the bands that I really, really like. Um, I think they need that exposure, and it, it helps them as well. Who do you think are some of the big, big bright stars of New England right now? Um, definitely for like symphonic melodic metal, probably Seven Spires is one of the ones that's most impressive. They just got done playing the seventy thousand tons of metal cruise. Yeah, uh, they played over in uh, Lithuania. They played the Metal Days Festival. Um, they're they're an incredible band. Um, I totally agree. I think they're probably the most promising. Right. It's like they're due to be signed. They should be signed. Yeah, know? they're doing they're doing all the right things as far as promotion and their sound is diverse enough. And I see a lot of times they have created kind of a buzz where they have followers that will go to every show of theirs, and that to me is usually a sign that. You're doing something right. If you can get somebody to go more than totally. 15 minutes out of their area to see a band play. Oh, yeah. Um, I would say for Thrash, Epicenter and Graviton are two of my favorite bands. They're both going in a little bit different directions, uh, starting from 
the thrash platform and they're they're both branching out into more progressive technical stuff like the the latest graviton stuff is just extremely brutal extremely in your face i thought graviton got a lot meaner right it's the first time i saw them and i liked it a lot more right like it was justified to have that you know like it was good it was right good i think that you know like anthony is an incredible drummer like the the beats he plays are, are sick and it's just they're able to still figure out a way even with all of the anger and the chaos and in the extreme elements to make things catchy and that's not an easy combination totally because when you're when you're being so extreme like it's very hard i think to catch people's attention because people just feel this one emotion and they they're figuring out a way of balancing the two it's crazy so graviton who's the other one you said next to that uh, epicenter epicenter I don't yeah think i've seen them yet yeah they're a new hampshire thrash band they've kind of moved more into a progressive direction i would say with their thrash sound and what's unique about them is their drummer is the singer as well so he really? basically plays double duty and so he's doing a lot of different drum beats um sometimes they incorporate kind of latin percussion or jazzy type movements into what they're doing and then there's other times where they'll just kind of go for more of a mashuga gojira kind of transition and then go right back into this like sick thrash part so really god damn that's complicated yeah. new hampshire band's doing all that yeah that doesn't sound normal <laughs> they were there they've been together for 10 years they they grew up together as friends so they were a high school band that now is oh, really? in their 20s and why haven't i seen this fucking band yeah have they played ralph's yeah they've played ralph's a few times yeah, fuck who they play there with i must admit <laughs> they've uh <clears throat> and they tend to they've opened at the palladium for like they opened for dark tranquility they've opened for testament so they've, oh, they've, really? they've done shows like that they played with ex mortis and lich king out in uh Western Mass, so they've done a really? lot of shows with some nationals too. But yeah, they do they do a mixture of shows around here in New Hampshire, down in Connecticut. No kidding. Shit. So so you think those those bands are those well? Like some of the other free? bands that I like are um, Golden Hall, which was at the the show that you saw at Ralph's. Yeah, they're a really good power metal band that I think has a lot of potential because their singer is more like baritone he's, yeah he's more like falconer that kind of sound which differentiates them from other bands but they also put in some blast beats too yeah. which i think is really really cool they were nasty yeah well i gonna tell you something though this is my little critique on golden hall i think they're very talented i got a, they got a bright future but i was i was talking to people at the bar about this they need to separate themselves mm -hmm. and what they got to do with this is this is a simple thing it's a kind of gay they gotta take their shirts off. <laughs> they gotta wear leather or something. Right, right, like, right. They need to like just sort of like embrace. Like, all right, fine. You're not gonna have your hair long. Right. But you're fucking in shape. You know, I'm a fucking fat slop of piece of shit over here. You right, know? Like, right. So many guys like our age are just like that. Young, young fucking men. Like, oh, live it up. Fucking do your thing. Get tough. Look beautiful for everybody. Cause that's what that's what they should be doing. Right, right. That's a pretty ass band. Fucking yeah. like so, you know. That's what I'm saying right there. Right. Same with fucking um, who was the band that opened up that show? Adamanis. Uh, Adamanis. I think uh, they're very good, but 
but they gotta they gotta wear some chain mail, right? Or right. some fur or something, right? Like right. you know, like seriously, like fucking like separate yourselves a little bit. Like you 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 have such a good sound, you're too fucking epic sounding to to look that average. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, I do. I do think that there are a lot of local bands that don't think about the image part of yeah. of live performance anymore, right. and that does matter. I think in certain genres where. Yeah, I understand for thrash and death metal people, you know, it's okay to be in the, in your favorite band t-shirt and blue jeans. But I do think definitely like when you're playing this melodic power metal or epic type of sounds, you probably should have that imagery to match the music impact. Totally. That's what I mean. It's like you want to be a warrior or some shit, like, you know, the Viking stuff and all that. Right. Like, <laughs> but you're up there wearing an old navy shirt you right. know it's like i don't know about that bro you know like, one of the kids was wearing a champion shirt you know the champion oh yeah, yeah. i asked him what his favorite champion album was <laughs> what did he say he's like ah i don't know <laughs> some shit <laughs> you like uh eternal champion eternal champion yeah they're a yeah. great band yeah i've watched some videos of uh, the performance they did at keep it true and they're a band that really impresses me because uh, they did I Am The Hammer and the whole crowd was singing that song and I was like, wow, this is a brand new band yeah. and you have 2,000 people in a hall in Germany singing I Am The Champion right back to them. Like The chills that must have just been coming from them on the stage because they would probably perform that song in the States and they'd be lucky to get like five or ten people probably to the show. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's just the sad state of affairs. I mean, That's why they don't want to tour, I bet. Right. That happens a lot. Like some band will get like six hundred bucks to play Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and like, well, you want to come out to Worcester, and, right? You know, we'll give you like maybe two hundred, right? It's like, well, Brooklyn was six hundred. Well, yeah, but still, right? You know, just come to Worcester. You know, it's I don't know. People that's, get spoiled. You know, right? Well, that's why I was happy. Normally, I end up working on Saturday nights, but if I have enough advance notice, I take the night off. And when the Attacker show came to the Ralphs, I'm like, I can't miss this. Like the last time I saw Attacker was at Power Mad back in 2000, and it was with a totally different lineup. Because the drummer came up to me at the show, and he was like, "Look, I know you saw us when when Bob Mitchell was fronting the band, who was the first singer, and he's on a few of the the later records, but he's not in the band anymore." He's like, "Honestly." Watch us perform and tell me what you think. After they were done, I was like, there's no contest. You guys blew away Bob's version. It was just really? incredible. Fuck. Because I had seen Bobby Lucas before when he used to sing for Overlord. I didn't. He, he was also in Seven Witches on the first two records, so I was familiar with his work back then too. But I had seen him with Overlord, so I knew he could pull off the, the, the vocals. Like Overlord did uh, Queen of the Reich as a cover, and he can... Hit belt out those Jeff Tate high notes. Yeah. Were you involved with the 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 festival up in New Hampshire at the Bomb Shelter with the Snake Pit Snake Pit Radio? Was it? No, no, that was a totally different thing. I I, I was actually at that show, but yeah, I, I Snake Pit Radio was something that was totally different than Snake okay. Magazine. Yeah, that was a radio program I think out of North Carolina. Because you said Seven Witches, and I'm pretty sure they played. That's correct. Yeah. James Rivera was in the band at that point from Hellstar. 
Now, that was one of those situations where it was an insane lineup. You can go over to the pit and look at this lineup. It's insane. Like, And hardly anybody was there. Nobody was there. <laughs> like Malia Rage with Steel Assassin. And <laughs> oh, yeah. Steel or two, I think, was there. I can't remember, dude. Like, and, like It was just insane. If, and you were talking about Seven Witches and, and such. And it's just like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fucking. It was such a weird time. It right. really was like that. That everybody just pretty much was oblivious to that whole era of fucking metal. You mm-hmm. know, there was a time period. It all. I would say like the late nineties to probably like two thousand three, two thousand four, where people were oblivious to those kind of tours and those kind of lineups, and all of a sudden people would be like, "Oh, Lizzie Borden's playing." And there'd be like five to ten people to see Lizzie Borden. And um, now, like if Lizzie Borden played around here, he could probably get 150, 200 people to show up. Yeah. Has he done anything lately? Um, he's working on a new record right now. Really? Yeah, I saw him a couple couple of years ago. They He played the Rock Junction down in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. It the was Rock a, Junction? It was this old club that um, kind of in a strip mall type area i got to see y&t there lizzie borden played there oh was that in west greenwich yeah i think it was west greenwich rhode island yeah, yeah. y&t was there that's yep. right yeah yeah that's a band i've been wanting to see incredible dave medichetti still has it really they performed for like two and a half hours three piece uh four piece because he plays guitar and sings oh wow but yeah they'll play last time i saw them they played 22 songs it was just like Insane, <laughs> really. And they've been at it since fucking like eighty. I mean, nobody knows about Y and T. It seems like fucking right. like it's just another one of those bands that you know people should know about it. Like Thin Lizzy kind of had that thing. You know, it's like the for average, many many years. Yeah, yeah. But ninety nine percent of America couldn't even probably tell you fucking boys are back in town who the fuck wrote it. Right. On that one percent that does know it. There was nothing about fucking bad reputation. Or Renegade. Yeah, Renegade. Chinatown. Yeah, Chinatown's nasty. Fucking Johnny the Fox. Bad reputation. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, I basically Rose. went down, when I was into Maiden, I went down the rabbit hole and bought like all the Thin Lizzy and the UFO stuff because those were the bands that influenced Maiden. And I was like, well, I need to hear what this twin guitar sounded all about. And you listen to those records and you're like, yep, this is the real deal. You know, I gotta admit though, I kind of struggle with the UFO stuff. Mm-hmm. I think like Eddie Trunk kind of burnt, burnt like. Uh, yeah, <laughs> to a certain extent, I would agree. But I mean, I they're my... not horrible. It's just I don't get like the impact. Like I don't feel like Force. It's a cool album and all that, but like you know, right? Fucking. I think if you look at it from a guitar perspective, you can tell that Schenker is one of the elite guitar players that made people really think about how they phrase things and how to base be tasteful when it came to like guitar solos because it wasn't just purely about shredding from from his perspective you listen to the solo and rock bottom and you kind of understand that it has its own flow to things that it could be like a separate song within itself and there were guitar players that weren't thinking about that that he helped them really think about phrasing and how to put things in place. Hmm. See, Wishbone Nash was the good Missing Puzzle band for that era. For right. Me. Argus? Yeah, the Argus album, fucking Twin Guitar, fucked. Right. That's the shit right there. 
Because for me, it, honestly, it actually a lot of it started with the Almond Brothers. Just yep. as a wee lad, you know, American kid growing up, it's the right. Almond Brothers. Well, there's a there's a correlation definitely between Southern rock and heavy metal. It's, you can't deny it. You listen to like Almond Brothers, Molly Hatchet, Leonard Skinner. It's it's there. Yeah, it's the hardest. It's very hard fucking blues rock, you know. In the end, you know. But then nobody knows about Rory Gallagher, yeah. which is fucking criminal too, you know. Right. Who's the fucking king of, you know, that's who Jimi Hendrix said was the greatest guitar player of all time. Right. So fuck. I mean, I think a criminally <laughs> underrated guitar player that everybody needs to discover again is Gary Moore. Like, there's just some really sick stuff that he was doing, not even, you know, beyond Thin Lizzy, his solo stuff. You listen to Victims of the Future or Corridors of Power, there's just some incredible stuff, you know. I know Nightwish covered Over the Hills and Far Away from one of his records, but just he was another guitar player that just knew tasteful phrasing and could do so much with, you know, smaller notes. Like, not not necessarily, fa- he didn't have to feel like he shredded, but he could, he could do that, but yeah. he just could be just as tasteful slower as he was fast. That track was at Powell City Parkway or whatever what the fuck it's called. Oh, Parsini, Parsini's Parkway? Yeah, that's what it's called. I yeah. never say it right. Fucking, but that's a great example of what you're talking about because he just had these real simple, almost like minute phrases within like his main riff. And like he never, he, w- he would make a point. It was the fact that he could gently play it. Right. And just, you know, present it that way instead of just fucking belting through shit and going to, you know, fucking a million miles per hour over everything people forget in in hard rock and metal the gray area matters just as much as the the hard stuff that sometimes it's okay to be like melodic and atmospheric and a little bit quiet in order to get to that next part that that makes that next part even better to basically like build the anticipation you know i think the best band that actually does that around here though is 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 hessian Mm -hmm. Uh, have you heard oh yeah yeah love them fuck like Hessian does that so well and we were talking about like how it accepts craft songs that are designed to be played live like Hessian does that like fucking like you know like these breaks where it's like no you know we're gonna mute it down and just fucking build off this little giddy up right here and shit like that you know right fuck that's a lost at yeah I don't know I want hopefully death metal is gonna get to the point where it gets a little bit more structured back into you know, it took like um, individual thought patterns is a good example of like diversification and, and death metal. Right. But I think so much of that came from Andy LaRoque. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And just that overall ability to be King Diamond's guitar player. And you Chuck's know. willingness to let him do that. Fuck yeah. Like Chuck, if you really listen to the death catalog, Chuck trusted the musicians that were always like in his place. There's a reason why spiritual healing sounds the way it does. James Murphy. There's a reason why human sounds the way it does. You know, getting the cynic guys in there took it to a whole new level. And then individual thought patterns, as you said, Andy was in the band. I I was fortunate enough to see them on the symbolic tour when, when Gene was in the band and they were incredible too. It was just like, I, I love the progression that they make. And then there are some people who are like, ah, I wish they had just stayed with what they were doing with scream, bloody gore and leprosy. It's like, no death chuck always wanted to kind of go to his own beat but also trust the musicians that were in his band to be able to like exemplify what they wanted to do yeah what's interesting too is when you listen to control denied and how far you could take that right you know and did you ever get in the pharaoh yeah oh yeah 
big Farrell fan. I actually knew uh, Matt Johnson, the guitar player, and Chris Black, obviously, is in the band, too. But I met Matt Johnson at the first Power Mad Festival that, in 1997 that I talked about. Yeah. So I knew about Farrell back then. Like, he was giving me demos. And I'm like, when's the album coming out? When's the album coming out? This sounds really, really good. Oh, it's taking, you know, it's taking us a little while. Then after the fire came out, and it sounded really good. And then, you know, they weren't able to tour because basically they all lived in different parts of, like, the United States. Chris Black moved from Pennsylvania out to Chicago and made things more difficult. But, yeah, I've, I've always loved their catalog. Like, yeah. Honestly, I think Chris Black is my top-of-the-food chain motherfucker. Right. Like, for any American singer-songwriter dude, like, right. fuck that guy. Like, I mean, next to Night Demon... High Spirits is probably like one of my favorite U.S. Really? melodic traditional metal bands. Like he's another one that he knows how to craft a song oh, and can get the can get the guy singing along. And yeah, I've interviewed him before, and he's like, he's like, I'm not going to tell you the formula, but I have a very specific way I want songs to sound, and that's why like he records the albums all himself. Yeah, and then just hires people to basically do the touring part. Yeah, yeah. See, we got into him through, uh, I say we, like, a bunch of my buddies were, like, wicked into Super Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um... And obviously Dawnbringer, too. Yeah, yeah, we, uh... I've booked Chris a lot to come out here, and, like, any opportunity I could, you know, we've worked together enough, and, you know, it's a great relationship, but we... The Dawnbringer stuff, um, I didn't really get too keen on until, like, the Profound Law was doing it for, right. um... Was the one before Lay of the Sun uh, in Sickness and Dreams? Yeah, yeah. No, not that one. What's the one after that? Fucking um, with like an earthquake on it. I gotta look at my rack over here. <laughs> Fuck, what's it called? Everybody's yelling at the fucking thing. What's the third dawn ring album called? Nucleus. Nucleus. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I think it's the fourth actually. Okay. Yeah. See that—that's the one that really caught my attention. I was just so hung up on the Super Christ shit. Right, right. <laughs> like you right. know, like just geeking out on on it was like you know six or seven Super Christ albums I got. You know, it's amazing that he's able to channel like all these different types of styles, and a lot of times he's playing different instruments within all the bands. Yeah, it's like oh, one band I'm going to be the singer and the bass player. Uh, you know, Pharaoh, I'm just going to stick to drums and High Spirits. Oh, I'm just going to be the singer, you know, out live. But I'll do all the instruments. So it's he knows like his guitar abilities aren't necessarily as strong as some of the other musicians, but he's able to get it done, and he he, he has a great relationship with his wife where he's able to devote a lot of time to music when he wants to be productive so he just the the ideas flow like he's always telling me i've got like three things on the back burner this is coming out next and then this and then this i'm like oh wow yeah that's what i mean the motherfucker that guy hustles right it's just that's you gotta work at songwriting you know it's just i don't know some people think it it's just something that falls out of the sky or you pull it out of your ass or fucking right. It just sows from the ground after a while. But no, you gotta fucking you gotta fucking unload the shit and build it and fucking get a plan and fucking really, you know, fuck it up and build it again. And, you know, like, if it's another suggestion that I could give to a lot of bands is really be picky about your songwriting. Like sometimes the first thing that you write isn't necessarily the best. That you sometimes have to take like a little bit of a critical approach what you're doing and be brutal about it and be like no this isn't good it needs to be better yeah 
So sometimes like the first song isn't the best song. Maybe it's the 10th song that's going to be the best song. Do you ever been in a situation with writing where like you've been like picky or like kind of brutal on a band critiquing them and they're like, hey, fuck you, co. Oh, yeah. Really? What happened? <laughs> um, what was it? I had a local band one time back when I was living in Lowell and uh, going to shows in Nashua and this band it was a local band. They basically called me out from the stage and just started swearing up a storm about a review that I had written about their live performance. What band was it? Yeah, a band was called No Thanks. No Thanks? Yeah. (laughs) And uh, the problem was the singer really wasn't that great, and I just didn't think they wrote good songs. They they had some good parts, but I just didn't think it flowed very well, and I was brutally honest saying that they needed to go back to the drawing board and, and work harder at it. And then what was funny is a year later... The singer came up to me and he was in another band and he said he apologized and he was like, you know what, you were right. He's like, you weren't, you weren't trying to put us down. You were just trying to make us better. And I said that that's that was what I try with my writing approach. I'm not trying to put people down, but I don't think it does the reader any service to basically say that everything is glorious and great because everything isn't glorious and great. There is going to be some duds out there. You know, I I don't like the new Machine Head. Um, I think the new Anvil album is horrible. And I will write about those things. And if those bands hate me for it, oh well. I mean, I don't think Rob Flynn's going to care because I've heard through interviews he's really happy with the new record, so more power to him. But I'll go back and listen to Burn My Eyes because that's the quintessential Machine Head album to me and that's what I want to hear Machine Head do. What was the last time Anvil did a great album, though? Um, I mean, to be honest, the first three albums are, are the classic albums. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> most people, yeah, when they, I mean, when they played Ralph's, people cared more about hearing Forged in Fire and Metal on Metal and yeah. Hard and Heavy. They didn't want to hear him doing the new stuff, but. Yeah. Oh. What's do you ever get frustrated though with all these kids nowadays on the internet and all these opinions you know it, it, it makes s- metal journalism harder because Fuck there are yeah. a lot of there are a lot of times that people people will look at my opinion and go who's he like who's he to say that he knows this stuff it, I, I feel like it doesn't matter to kids that I've been listening to metal for 35 years and probably have listened to over 20,000 albums. It, to them, it doesn't matter because they feel like their opinion is the opinion that matters the most now compared to having someone that maybe has a little bit of seasoning and a little bit of experience. That's crazy, though. Nobody respects the elders anymore. Right. They really don't, especially in Western culture. Right. Let alone metalhead culture. But, you know, but I, I don't know. That I, I always come off like such an old man, disgruntled. But you know, I'm still. I'm mean, I'm 34. But like, right. In my position, what's interesting is that I've been through this weird transition. There's that article that calls us Zennials. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in between the millennial X and, the- and yeah, in between millennials. So, but that's the thing. It's like I grew up dubbing shit off of the fucking radio, college radio, nasty habits on 88.9. And, right. And doing that, but then also getting experience with Napster and mm-hmm. and you know everything in between that and having the internet show up was fucking massive too you know right. cuz I couldn't just go to the fucking store I couldn't I couldn't ride my bike fucking 10 miles down route 9 to <laughs> you know the nearest place to get a fucking metal magazine you know I get the like pluses that. and the minuses when it comes to the internet don't get me wrong I mean I love the fact that 
when I'm doing research for interviews, I can find information at my fingertips. So I can prepare a really good interview because I can learn about the musician that I'm going to talk about and see what he has to say and, you know, come up with good questions because I, I don't I don't like generic interviews. I don't like what are your influences? You know, what are you doing next? Da, 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 da. Yeah. I'd rather get a little deeper and, and know a little bit more so that they feel like, hey, you know, he actually paid attention to something. He knows about song three on album four, or, you know, or this lineup change or, you know, to me, like I want readers to get value out of what I write and feel like they learn something. Yeah. Nobody gets anything anymore. It's fuck. I mean, people don't even write. It's it's video blogs. Right, right. You see the video blog? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I like the podcasting medium. This, this, this is a great medium that I think it's going to explode even more because podcasting is stuff that you can still be doing something else and listen to the podcast at the same time. Yeah, totally. Definitely. And the two, you know, the beautiful thing is, you know, I, I don't want to have a producer telling me what I can and can't talk about. Right. And, you know, even with writing, having an editor be like, well, you have to, you know, like ugh. the beauty of, of writing for dead rhetoric is we all kind of know each other well enough. I mean, yeah, I'm the old man at 47, but David, um, he's from Pittsburgh and he's in his mid thirties and Kyle, he's from New York. He's in his mid thirties and Matt from Providence. He's in his mid thirties too. So it's like, we're all kind of around the same age other than me being a little bit older than them. But we have the freedom to be like, you know what? I want to cover this. And yeah. Yeah. Fine. You know, and they don't really do a lot of editorializing. They, they trust what I'm going to cover and I trust what they're going to cover. And there it is. Yeah. And you just run it too. It's not like you got to wait to print it and right. fucking, you know. The beauty of it is is we upload new material 5 days a week. So there's always constantly something new to look at whether it's a, an interview, an exclusive song premiere, uh, we try to do at least three new reviews five days a week. So there's always consistently like new information. And the numbers are are, are pretty good. I mean, we average usually between like 30,000 to 50,000 um, unique hits a month. And the views are like 200 to 300,000, which ends up being like people look at five or six different things each time that they're on the site, which yeah. is really good. It's interesting. I mean, that's what's crazy, man, is like you can now analyze how everything's being processed. There's so much fucking information about the information. Right. You know? That's cool. I don't yeah. know. I'm fascinated by that shit. That's why I'm in web development and stuff. Right. You know? And like, what's fascinating is sometimes, like, if a band, say we interview a band like Sabaton and they share it, like, all of a sudden, we'll, our, our, our viewership will spike. Fuck which yeah. Which tells us, hey, like, Sabaton fans want to learn more about the band Sabaton. So, okay, we'll cover them a little bit more. And, yeah. you know, that we, we take that into account. Like, the labels are real, getting really good about promoting the coverage that they're getting from their bands and they realize that it, it, it's a win-win situation for them. Like if yeah. more people are reading about their band, more people are apt to either, you know, check out their stuff, go to the shows, buy merch, that yeah. kind of thing. Well, that's what I like about you guys though. It's not like some of these other jerk off sites that are, it's just a bunch of hot takes right? and fucking snazzy headlines, just, you know, clickbait headlines and shit, yeah. you know, gossipy fucking shit. There's still, it's, 
but the craft of writing first. Yeah, we we that was one of the things that we always were dedicated metalheads that wanted to give an intelligent, you know, informed opinion about what we cover. If you want to go see clickbait stuff, yeah, you can go on Blabbermouth or you can go on Metal Sucks or you can go on all these different sites that have that intriguing headline. Then all of a sudden you read it and you're like, uh, this isn't really what I wanted. Yeah. I'd yeah. rather, I'd rather get the chance to sit down with Udo and ask him, you know, about his history and what he's going to be doing and, you know, really get in depth about some of my favorite songs and albums and shows than, you know, discuss stuff that is clickbait. It's not really, not really my bag. Exactly. But that's the thing. And I'm sure you can understand that as a writer and just somebody who's obsessed with metal as much as I am, the rate of consumption that we have, it's like we've all read those those same interviews. With right. Fucking tell me about that. Tell It's like, fuck that, dude. Right. I want to hear the fucking vague shit. You right. You know, like, I don't know. That's why I do this, ultimately. Right. Fucking, fuck yeah. So shit, guy. I appreciate you being here. We're all going to go to Dead Rhetoric. Dot com. That's that's the website, yes. www.deadrhetoric.com. R-H-E-T-O-R-I-C. Any reviews coming up uh, for the rest of this year you're really looking forward to writing? Um, albums that I'm looking forward to. Um, New Angra is coming out in a couple weeks, so I'm going to be working on that review at some point this week. Um, obviously, if King Diamond comes out with a record before the end of the year, that would be nice. Uh, let me think. That Angra, I heard Angra on Nasty Habits about 20 years ago. It changed my life. Nothing to say. Yeah. I went like fucking two years wondering what the hell, who was that? Like, <laughs> you know, like, could never find it in the store. <clears throat> Did you think it was the second coming of Halloween when you heard that record? I didn't even know about Halloween back then. Oh, you didn't? Yeah, yeah I knew nothing at all about power metal. Oh, wow. Like, at all, really. So you really went down the rabbit hole when you were hearing, like, certain obscure stuff. Oh, yeah. Totally. I'm still haunted by shit. Like I, there was like there was one Dutch band I heard back then that sang in Dutch and they had this one fade in. I have no idea who they were. Oh, no, they the uh, radio announcer didn't tell you the band and you probably did. It was just <laughs> I was like a little naive kid, you know, like didn't press record on the on the radio. I was know? the same way. Like there was a show called Metal Shop on WAAF that they used to do like Friday nights at midnight. It was a one hour show, and there was this one time that they played this song and they didn't announce who it was. And I had to go searching and searching, and it took me like two years to find out it was Sabotage, City Beneath the Surface. Really? And I was like, because it had that haunting keyboard intro, and then all of a sudden, like this really evil guitar chord comes out, and you hear John Olivia go, hey, welcome to hell. And I'm like, holy <laughs> cow, this is like the heaviest stuff back in 85. Like, that's what all of a sudden got me down the rabbit hole of going from like Iron Maiden except Saxon into Fate's Warning, Sabotage and yeah. heavier stuff. Yeah, totally. Hall of the Mountain King. Yeah. I get jacked hearing that. Fucking oh, Nothing better than that, dude. Definitely. Heavy metal's awesome, isn't it? It's It's a lifestyle and it's something that I'll be listening to even in my 70s and 80s and <laughs> I'll be like one of those heavy metal grandpas still trying to rock out and go into as many shows as I can. We have to get organized. We need we need to make a home or something. <laughs> I saw that band Hook is in Blow a couple weeks ago. Okay, it's uh, Dizzy Reed. Yeah, from Junior uh, and Johnny Kelly from Typo and Danzig and and they were, they were making a joke. They were like, you know, we actually played a retirement home yesterday. 
like uh, <laughs> next to New Haven, somewhere out there. Okay. And we kind of chuckled, but I'm like, actually, I don't think that's a joke. Like, <laughs> I think like they probably played like a 55 and over home. Oh wow! Because in the end, I'm like, you know, those dudes are classic rock. Right. And in the end, who the fuck else is buying albums? And listen, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, yeah. It, like there was no event page for it, <laughs> so I'm like, they they fucking probably promote this on the radio. Wow. Like, you know, there was like no event page whatsoever for it, and you know, <laughs> still a hundred people there. You nice, know? it was a good time, but just got me thinking. Definitely, you know, retirement home metal and all that. Yeah, I could see us all. We should get a home down by Ralph's. Definitely, right? We'll just all be there. It'll be like two hundred of us, and we'll book by committee. There you go. <laughs> we'll give out awards that'll be, that'll be sweet for fucking A well, I appreciate you being here dude thank you Taking very much the time to talk to me looking forward to going to deadrhetoric.com all the other reviews you'll be writing a pleasure sir thank, thank you. you cheers <laughs>